This is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And this is Father Patrick Briscoe. Welcome to Godsplaining and this episode of Guestsplaining. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, Father Patrick, here we are, another guest explaining episode. Um, it's great to be with you. We're not the only ones here, and nobody really cares to listen to us. So I'm going to, I'll let you, we, we don't have to do this usual, like, how's the weather banter? Because <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, it. But I'll let you, no. yeah, you introduce our, our, our guest, Dr. Weigel, that we have no, with it's, us here. No, it's, it's right to business today, and which is fitting because today we have one of the most prodigious, prolific authors in the Catholic space. Uh, Mr. George Weigel is joining us, who's the Distinguished Senior Fellow and William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Mr. Weigel, thanks for coming on God's Planning. It's great to be with you, fellas. Thanks for having me. So our topic today uh, is an exciting one, and I have already a, my copy of your latest book, To Sanctify the World, and it will join all of my many other George Weigel works, which as we've said, grace my book bookshelves. If anyone hasn't read it, if you haven't, no, I'd like to recommend to our listeners, especially this book, Letters to a Young Catholic, which is just a, a marvelous reflection on culture and faith. But anyway, that's not the book we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Mr. Weigel's newest book, To Sanctify the World, which is about the Second Vatican Council. Now, admittedly, the Second Vatican Council happened long uh, before I was born. And I, I of course, grew up in in, uh, in the post-conciliar years, uh, but even I am aware that there are many books out about the Second Vatican Council, very many books out about the Second Vatican Council. So I guess my first question, that what I, what I want to hear from you uh, as we begin to discuss the work is why, why do we need this book? Why write another history about what is uh, considered by many, including myself, the most significant ecclesial event in the modern age? October 11th, 2022 is the 60th anniversary of the solemn opening of, of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, that anniversary deserves to be celebrated. Uh, I thought a book that took a fresh look at why the council was necessary, what John XXIII's original intention for the council was, what the council actually taught, and how the council had been authoritatively interpreted by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, both of whom were men of the council as, as young scholars, uh, was an appropriate way to, to celebrate this 60th anniversary. Uh, as you say, there's been an awful lot of chatter about Vatican II for 60 years now. Uh, most of it, I find, is frankly ill-informed. Uh, a lot of people who fight about Vatican II have never read the documents of Vatican II. If they have read them, they probably haven't read them in the proper order. There is a sequence to these things. And they really haven't wrestled with the question of why did this happen in the first place? What caused a generally conservative and very traditional pope uh, then in his late 70s? to summon an ecumenical council of all the world's bishops, which became, by the way, the largest legislative body with real authority in human history. Uh, that's something else nobody thinks about with the Second Vatican <laughs> wow. Council. It's the largest legislative body in the history of humanity. So those are all reasons why I thought a fresh look at, 
at the council was appropriate. I think one of the kind of questions in the same vein that that um, that I that I have in, in thinking about the book and anticipating the book, um, the the anniversary, um, something that as Father Patrick said, you know, we we were born well after the council. We grew up, yeah, in a in a different time. Our 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 priesthood is something totally informed by the council and the effects of the council. Um, I, I think for, I guess, what is, you say, you know, to take a fresh look, um, what, what sort of, I guess, what's, what are the sort of foundational things that need to be looked at with sort of fresh eyes? What is it that the, I guess, I guess the question I'm asking is, is where is the relevance, um, to be found with respect to the council because it, it can just be something and it might just be something you know that that happened and affected the church but it's been this long and you know people don't know as you've already explained do people care like what, what what's the relevance even for for all catholics younger catholics are you know that kind of that kind of world john the 23rd summoned the second vatican council because this man who was not trained as a theologian in, in graduate school, not as a canon lawyer, but as a historian. And a historian whose specialty was the reforming work of Charles Borromeo in Milan uh, in the, at the height of the Counter-Reformation, a, a very turbulent social and cultural period, understood that the world was going through a similar crisis of civilizational self-understanding. Uh, the first half of the 20th century was a complete mess. Two world wars, three totalitarian systems, oceans of blood, mountains of corpses, the greatest persecution of the church in history. That raises a question, what went wrong here? You know, what went wrong in the Western civilizational project and what might the church say to that? Uh, I think John XXIII, not unlike a very young Polish bishop named Karol Wojtyła, who would play a significant role at Vatican II and then an even more important role as one of its authentic interpreters when he became John Paul II, understood that there were two fundamental issues in this civilizational crisis. And this is what frames the first third of, of my book, To Sanctify the World. First, there was a crisis in the idea of the human person. Who are we? Where did we come from? What is our destiny? You get the answers to that wrong, and you're going to make a whole lot of mess in society, culture, and politics, and the first half of the 20th century proved that. I mean, beneath every one of those everything in that parade of horribles I just listed is a defective idea of the human person. Secondly, what is authentic human community? Modernity tended to fracture and fragment traditional communities. Part of that parade of horribles, to go back to that, whether we're talking about Italian fascism, or Soviet communism, or German national socialism, these are false efforts at rebuilding human community. If you get that wrong, then you're going to make a lot of trouble. Uh, so John Twenty-Third wanted the council to do two things, to lift up Jesus Christ as he who reveals 
the truth about our humanity, where we came from, who we are, what our destiny is. And the church, as what the council would eventually call the sacrament of the unity of the human race or the model for authentic human community. So the council was summoned to address the two great meta issues involved in the crisis of Western civilization that, that he discerned, that John XXIII discerned. Those happened to be the same two meta issues before the world today. I mean, some of the terms of reference have changed. Some of the parade of horribles has changed. Nobody thought of gender theory uh, in 1962 when the council opened. But these two questions, who are we and how ought we to live together, uh, remain the meta issues. And therefore, what the council has to, had to say about that remains entirely relevant to the crisis of, of civilization in which we find ourselves yeah, even just that frame. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to comment. Uh, even that, just that framework that you've laid out um, is in in many ways even new new to my ears, and I imagine would be new to many, 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 many people. Um, it's just because often I think the council has looked at at its for its liturgical changes and these sort of things, but that's you know that's not it's it's not the heart of the council to to sort of move an altar or change the language. So it's just it's. It's uh, I would not surprising, but um, fascinating to to know because the the history here that's that's informing the church and her wisdom. The um, the council was far less about reinventing the church than about sanctifying the world. Hence the title of the book to, to sanctify the world. Now, in order to do that, under these distinctive conditions of what we would now call late modernity. Uh, the church had to develop its Christology and how that Christology shaped our view of the human person, Christology, anthropology, nexus, if you will. Church had developed its own self-understanding, uh, not simply as an institution to be defended, but as a launch platform for mission and evangelization. The church had to rethink its relationship to other religious traditions. Uh, and to get Father Jacob Bertrand to your point, uh, the church had to renew its worship. Late modernity worshiped all sorts of false gods, whether that was the party state or the, the racial ethnic group or money or pleasure, the pleasure principle or whatever. Human beings are theotropic. They are going to worship something. Uh, and if you worship, if you don't have true objects of worship, they're going to be false objects of worship. So the renewal of the church's worship was intended to meet this civilizational need for true worship for a genuine connection to the transcendent, to that which is larger than us, to that which gives direction and purpose to our lives. Uh, now, we can sit here for the next 15 podcasts uh, arguing about how well that intention was implemented. Uh, 
and there's a lot to be said in, in criticism of that implementation. But that was the intention. Uh, it was not fiddling for the sake of fiddling. And uh, I think that if people understood that, you know, then the liturgy wars might be a bit ameliorated and everyone could calm down a bit. <laughs> That's ex- that, I, I was going to say exactly the same sort of thing that Father Jacob Bershon was saying, that there, there are major factors here that allow us to say, as you've said unequivocally, that the council was necessary and that it was just that it was not just a kind of um, general impression or or naive idea of, of John the 23rd uh, to, to open it and that it, that it responded to a lot of the, the real needs that we've been talking about. Um, but but throughout the council, um, because of because of so many of these factors, there was a lot of controversy. There's still enduring controversy, which is why we're why we're, we're, we're reading your new book about it as we continue six years out to, to, sort, to sort through it. Um, and I think there are a lot of people in the church that are, that are afraid of that, that are, that are afraid of controversy, that are afraid of, uh, of a change like that, because they would, they would prefer a, a, vi- a vision of the church that is placid or, or um, j- just peaceful, sorted out, uh, where where life is comfortable and I that you know that's me on, on most days that's what I want but but it seems like because of the because of the factors uh, uh, around the world that have changed um, it seems like we we might say something like the controversy was necessary and uh, and that, that that there are ways that there are ways that we can engage in the controversy with with better uh, with better success than others so I wonder if you might weigh in on that question on just the nature of the nature of controversy and. And how we, as faithful Catholics, should 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 approach it um, e- even today as the controversy perdures. This 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 comes up all the time, as you can imagine, when I'm out speaking to Catholic groups, especially the most devout Catholic groups. And you know, they what's with all this air turbulence in in recent years? And the, the way I've asked people to start rethinking about that is to remember that while there are libraries of books of church history. There is only one divinely inspired book of church history. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's in the New Testament. How does it end? It ends with a shipwreck. And the shipwreck becomes the occasion to extend the mission of the church into territory where the gospel had not been proposed before. I think that's a metaphor for, for really all of Catholic life, if you know anything about the history of the church, you know it's far more turbulence than stability. The, the period immediately after the Second World War, for example, which American Catholics experienced as a great period of stability, but most of the rest of the world church experienced as a great time of turbulence, um, it, it's just a false filter through which to read the history of the entire church. The second point is that um, every council in history, all 21 of them as Catholics count these things, was called because of controversy, was conducted in controversy, and was followed by controversy, which is why, thank God, we've only had 21 of these things (laughs) in 2,000 years. They're always a mess, but they're a necessary mess. Um, And it also takes probably at least a century, if not more, 
for the teaching of a council to work its way into the texture of, of Catholic life. I mean, the fathers of the first ecumenical council at Nicaea in 325 AD thought they had solved the problem of Arianism. You know, there was a, a, a kind of demotion of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Um, that problem continued for hundreds of years and in some form still exists today. Um, you could, it took at least a hundred years for the Council of Trent, the Catholic answer to the many Protestant reformations of the 16th century. It took at least a hundred years for the Council of Trent to work its way into the texture of the rhythm of, of Catholic life. So it should be no surprise if you knew some history that the Second Vatican Council was a bit of a brouhaha and has been followed by controversy. Now, one guy who knew this was going to happen was the Pope who presided over the second, third, and fourth periods of the council, Pope Paul VI. The night that John XXIII, in January 1959, announced his intention to summon an ecumenical council, then Cardinal Giovanni Battista Montini, Archbishop of Milan, called a friend of his, Father Giulio Bevilacqua, and said, this holy old boy, John XXIII, doesn't understand what a hornet's nest he's stirring up. I mean, Montini, who had been the, the closest aid to Pius XII knew that there was a whole lot of stuff churning in the church and that that was all going to come to the surface in a council. Um, the hornet's nest was indeed stirred up, but out of that stirring came some really beautiful things. Uh, to reread what I think is the central document of Vatican II, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, known by its Latin incipit as Dei Verbum, the Word of God, is to read a, a not only beautiful, but thoroughly robust confession of faith in the reality of God's speech into what the world often perceives as great silence. You know? And a silent yeah. world is a claustrophobic world. Absolutely. And I think in that same vein, when, you know, when, when, people, when people are talking about that, when they're talking about the controversy, like one of the things you hear, and uh, I just think that the, the prophecy of Paul VI there is great. We can add that to his prophecy in Humana Vitae. Uh, and we've got further evidence of his prophetic gifts here. But, uh, but uh, in, in, as we're thinking about this question of controversy generally, I think there are people that argue, well, the Second Vatican Council would have been great. John XXIII's intention was great if it hadn't been hijacked. Uh, so, the, so their way of resolving this question of controversy is to say, well, it, it could have been otherwise, but the original intention was, was destroyed um, because the nefarious political forces worked against, worked against the Holy Father, and we, we've been left with something that, that was not the original intention. So I wonder if you might comment on that, this question of hijacking. Well, that often goes hand in hand with some thoroughly insane, if I may say, conspiracy theorizing about Vatican II. Um, the Taylor Marshall book on Vatican II, 
title of which is escaping me right now, Infiltration, is, I think, the worst book I have ever read in my life. It is replete with factual errors. It's mindlessly paranoid conspiracy theorizing. Uh, and it's, it's actually a great disservice to the church. Now, it is absolutely the case that there are people within the church who have radically misunderstood and radically, I mean, rooted, you know, at the roots, have misunderstood uh, the intention of John the 23rd and the teaching of Vatican II. People who talk about paradigm shifts in the church's self-understanding, I, I think, fall into this category. This is a fundamental misunderstanding. The Catholic Church does not do paradigm shifts. The paradigm was given by the Lord himself. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc. What the church does do is develop its doctrine, meaning deepen its self-understanding. That is very different from a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is when you switch from the Ptolemaic view of the universe to the Copernican view of the universe. <laughs> That's a paradigm shift. We don't do that stuff. Jesus is still Lord, period, and everything flows from that. So uh, I think to understand the difference between development of doctrine and so-called paradigm shift um, is, is very important. Um, the other thing I would say to the hijack-minded people is if you look around the world church today, which is a complex business, I mean, we're talking about 1.3 billion human beings, every imaginable social and cultural circumstance. But there, there seems to be a pattern there, and that is that the sectors of the world church that have uh, accepted, embraced the authentic interpretation, the authoritative interpretation of Vatican II offered by John Paul II and Benedict XVI as a summons to missionary discipleship, and what John Paul II called the new evangelization, those parts of the world church are flourishing. Whether we're talking about sub-Saharan Africa or the Dominican House of Studies on Michigan Avenue Northeast and in Washington, D.C., and everything in between. It's the parts of the world church that have misinterpreted Vatican II as some sort of warrant for what I have been calling for 20 years now, Catholic light, who are demonstrating that Catholic light eventually leads to Catholic zero, uh, not unlike a certain soft drink with which we're all familiar. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if there, uh, if there are people who have missed the story, then hopefully this non-polemical book uh, which tries to lay out in a careful way what the council actually taught uh, and how that fulfilled the original intention of John the 23rd, you know, can find in Vatican II real sources of inspiration for their Catholic lives today. So I think with, with talking about hijacking, controversy, paradigm shift, lack thereof, um, and, and you mentioned this sort of development of doctrine and, and the way the church actually responds to the sort of times, if we can use, you know, that, that phrase, how, what a proper response is rather than a sort of paradigm shift. 
In, in your book, you have a couple chapters on two recent popes. You've already mentioned John Paul II and now Benedict XVI as sort of keys keys to understanding the council. I guess I, I'm sort of curious to 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 hear a bit about that. Of you know, if we're looking to get a good sense of this is what the council is about. This is John the Twenty Third's intention carried on by Paul the Sixth. These pontificates. Why John Paul II? Why Benedict the Sixteenth? I think often people mistakenly see them as very different. Different doesn't mean they can't be doing the same thing, but um, how are they, you know, why, yeah, why are they keys to the council? How are they helpful and are coming to know the, the sort of heart of, of the church through the council? Every previous ecumenical council had provided in one form or another, the keys to its own proper interpretation. If you want to know what Nicaea 1 in 325 taught, and what was that about? You read the Nicene Creed. That's mm. the key to the Council of Nicaea. If you want to know what Ephesus in 431 was about, you read its dogmatic definition of Our Lady as Theotokos, God-bearer, Mother of God. That's the key to the Council. Chalcedon, 20 years later, two natures in the one person of Christ, dogmatic definition, that's the key to the other councils provided keys by writing canons into the law of the church. Um, Trent uh, added the, a, a catechism as a key to its authentic teaching. And, and some councils provided keys to their authentic interpretation by condemning heresies. Vatican II did none of that. No definitions, no creed, no catechism, no canons, no condemnations. 16 documents of varying magisterial heft or weight, but how are they to be read and in what proper order? John Paul II and Benedict XVI were both influential figures at Vatican II. They knew this council from the inside. Joseph Ratzinger was one of the three most influential theologians at Vatican II with your Dominican brother, Yves Congar, and the French, uh, Belgian uh, theologian, Gerard Philippe. Uh, Wojtyla did a lot of work on the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world and on other conciliar documents. So they knew this from the inside. They knew it was necessary, that it was full of good stuff, if you will, but that it needed to be represented after 20 years of confusion so that its authentic teaching might be understood. And that's why I think those two pontificates from 1978 to 2013 are one 35-year arc of authentic interpretation of Vatican II. And I spell out in the second third, the third third. Uh, exactly what, what that interpretation was. And as I said a moment ago, uh, the test of that is that the living parts of the world church are the ones that have embraced that interpretation. That's, you know, by your fruits, you will know. And there, there are the fruits. And meanwhile, the, you know, the hijackers, if you will, or the mis misconstruers, if we're feeling a bit more charitable, um, are, are leading dying parts of the church. This is most evident in Germany today. Um, 
mind-boggling to me that otherwise intelligent people want to reinvent Catholicism in Germany as a form of liberal Protestantism. Liberal Protestantism has not been a success anywhere in the world. Why do we want to imitate that? Why do we want to be the church of woke? The church of woke doesn't convert people to Jesus Christ. It, it leaves the culture unevangelized. Um, so this is all a bit puzzling, but to, to uh, say that that's what Vatican II was about is just ridiculous. And to assume that this wokery in the church, if you will, has happened because of Vatican II is to make an elementary logical error. Post-contrillium ergo propter contrillium. If it happened after the council, it happened to ha had to happen before, it had to happen because of the council. Well, that's as much a logical fallacy as post hoc ergo propter. Uh, things just don't work that way. Um, so I hope I hope this book uh, sorts that out a little bit more uh, carefully too. Well, we want to say a word of thanks to you for joining us today here on God's Planning. Again, I want to encourage our listeners to go check the book out to sanctify the world. It will be available on October fourth. It's going to be a very exciting read, as you, as you've seen. Uh, so thank you again, Mr. Weigel, for for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having. Me. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, thanks for all to all of you for listening to this episode of Guest Splaining here on God Splaining. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like, subscribe, and leave a five star review. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, please follow the link in the description. You can also follow the links in the description to shop God Splaining merchandise and to get information on upcoming God Splaining events. As always, keep us in your prayers. We're praying for you, and until next time, God bless. Mm -hmm.